Okay, so we're recording. Um, okay, so you all have your handouts. And uh, yeah, this is a new one to complete. This is two pages. We may only get through the first page. We'll see how far we get. Uh, but it is um, titled Faith and Repentance. And uh, in some sense, it's fleshing out what we talked about last week about the gospel. And um, uh, really, we also, I think, can uh, be spending some time sort of in Q&A, thinking about this stuff uh, more in depth. Uh, so this really comes up basically on the premise of what I said last week, which was that we're not saved by works, that we're saved by the work of Christ, uh, and that Jesus takes the initiative um, and um, if the Bible recognizes that this is, there are philosophical issues with this, you could say. Uh, because at one level, you could say it sounds unjust, right? And we talked about this the last week, you know. But there's also just the question of, uh, you know, it's explicitly addressed in the Bible. If God forgives people, then what's to stop them from going out and doing more sin, right? Uh, and this was a debate at the time of the Reformation between the Catholic Church and the Protestant. Uh, in general, we even feel this ourselves, right? Like if somebody has done something mean to us and I forgive them, isn't that like giving them, you know, carte blanche to do it again? Uh, and so uh, it's a basic issue. Uh, and so in general, you can also ask the question, I have here three practical applications for this whole topic for, for today. Uh, the first is what I just said. Does the gospel encourage people to wallow in sin? And actually the Catholic Church argued the Reformation is bad for society. It'll... It'll increase lawlessness because everybody will say I'm forgiven, so it doesn't matter. I'll just you know go out and commit crimes. Uh, it actually historically had the opposite effect. Actually, uh, the societies where the gospel really took root became much more law-abiding, and we'll talk about why that would be. Um, the second thing that really comes up with this is who should I accept as a fellow Christian? Uh, should I accept just anybody that calls themselves a Christian? The Bible talks a lot about hypocrites, and it says just because you're a son of Abraham or whatever, it doesn't mean that you're actually uh, saved and in God's good graces. So it's possible for someone to be a fake Christian. So then is there any way at all to know uh, is, is another very practical question. And then the third one, I think, is one that uh, all of us can relate to, which is how can I be, sh how can I be sure that I myself am saved? Uh, because in, in the Bible, it will say, you think you're a Christian, but I'm telling you you're not. <laughs> You know, you think you're righteous, but I'm telling you, you're far from God. Uh, and so, if that's possible, then how do I know? How can I be sure? Or can I be sure? Do I have to just sort of uh, live in uncertainty? Um, so I've got um, several different sections here. The first is, I'm going to really talk about it, in some sense you could say, from God's perspective. Uh, from how he views the situation. And the Bible clues us in on that. So, again, we talked weeks ago about... In general, we don't know anything about God unless he tells us. But in the Bible, he does tell us stuff about how he thinks about stuff. Uh, and we have a number of uh, what are sometimes called the precious promises. Uh, and in the Reformed language, it's sometimes called the perseverance of the saints. Uh, and basically, uh, lots of words that it doesn't depend on us, that God takes the initiative, and what he starts, he finishes. Um, so... I'm not going to, uh, for sake of time, I'm not going to read out loud these Bible passages, but I encourage you uh, to look them up. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, the beginning of that, is a really classic one in which he says, um, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. God took the initiative to save you, uh, and it doesn't depend on your works. And actually, even your faith is something that God gave to you. Uh, that's basically the gist of that passage. So it's uh, not as though God was sitting there waiting for us to come up with faith, and then we came up with faith as well. I'm going to reward you now for that good deed of coming up with faith. Uh, but rather, it says even your faith was given to you. Uh, and sometimes the analogy is used, a lot of Reformed people will refer to this, when Paul says you were dead in your trespasses, um, you know, the analogy is, you know, if, if some people present the gospel, something like, here's a person in the sea and they're drowning and you throw a life preserver toward them and then they have to have their own initiative to grab onto the life preserver. But scripture actually doesn't present that picture. It says, you're dead. 
Okay, so you're actually lying on the beach, stone cold dead, and there's nothing you do. <laughs> uh, and God has to resuscitate you, and God has to bring you to life to give you new life. And so, um, uh, it's if it wasn't that way, it would basically be saying that actually uh, there is something good in us that God rewards, uh, and the faith is this virtue that He's going uh, to to reward. And that's just not the way that Scripture talks. And so it really speaks of us being spiritually dead. We can be physically alive and spiritually dead. And then the Holy Spirit um, giving us new hearts and new eyes, so to speak. Uh, Now, the other thing, uh, this is point B here, if you're following along. There's lots of language in the Bible of what you call sort of transfer language. Uh, You used to be this way, now you're this way. Uh, You were dead, now you're alive. Uh, you used to be cut off, now you're included. Uh, you used to be orphans and aliens, now you're part of God's household as adopted children. Um, what are some other ones? Uh, you used to have a hard heart or a dead heart, now you have a living heart. Um, you used to be blind and now you see. Uh, and so there really is a, a sense in scripture in which there's a finality of this transfer that Something is done <clears throat> that's irrevocable. And it's very similar. I think that the language of sort of adoption papers is, is a good one, where it talks about God adopting you into his kingdom. And if you think about it, like, if even, you know, so you say the worst parents ever, okay, you adopt a child, you don't then, like, the next day say, oh, you were a bad child, so today I'm unadopting you. You know, and then two days later, oh, well, that was good, so I'm going to readopt you again. And then, oh, no, no, you're bad, so I'm going to unadopt you. That's just not the way it works, right? When you're adopted, you're adopted, you're in. Uh, and you don't have to worry about your status uh, in the family. Uh, and that's the way scripture talks, that it's a once and for all adoption. You are now God's child. And um, a result of that is that you, in principle, don't need to worry every day about whether you're in or out. Uh, you are sort of declared righteous, you are declared in. And I put a bunch of passages down there, um, in which, again, I won't read. Romans chapter 8, the entire chapter, is all this language of saying, you know, the Holy Spirit prays for you, uh, and nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, and God has worked all things together for good for those who are his. Uh, and so there's just lots of language like that. Um, and the one that I, I think is a, is a, a very good one uh, in particular is Philippians 1.6, where uh, Paul says, I'm convinced that he who began a good work in you will finish it to the end. Uh, and I think that just really gets at the character of God. Like God is a God who finishes what he starts. Uh, he doesn't sort of uh, up and down, oh, I changed my mind, you know, just, just chuck that. But rather, uh, when he changes a heart, it stays changed. So I says that this is all from God's perspective. Uh, you could say from the sort of the truth of the matter is that people are not in and out, in and out, in and out. They're in. Uh, and it's because it's God's work and not ours that it relies on. Um, so then you can sort of take a different perspective and say, well, what about from our perspective? Because we don't have omniscience. <laughs> you know, we don't know everything that God knows. So we can say, in general, I know that's the way God works. But how do I know in this particular case of this person whether that's actually the case? And I think uh, Matt preached on this even just a couple weeks ago about clearly you can be wrong sometimes because there are clearly people who seem to be Christians who repudiate it and walk away uh, from the faith. And so we can't say that I have perfect knowledge of everybody's heart and I know for sure everybody uh, who's in and everybody who's out. so then we can say, well, on the other hand, the Bible does give us uh, language to indicate that we can pretty much know. Like, it's not a complete mystery either, uh, because it says you'll know them by their fruits. You know, and um, uh, you know, we have something called the church, right? Um, so basically, in Scripture, both Old and New Testament, there are two things that get used a lot in terms of language, um, and these are called faith and repentance. Uh, and I think this is actually where the Reformed confessions, like the Westminster Confession, are actually quite helpful because a lot of Christian traditions will almost oppose these to each other. 
and to be like, well, you're saved by faith and therefore repentance isn't unimportant, isn't important. Or the opposite would say, repentance is what matters and faith doesn't mean anything. And it's almost like there's a tension. In the Reformed uh, documents, uh, it really does a good job of putting these two together. Uh, so um, you could spend all day talking about the definition of either one, but basically you say faith is trusting God and in particular trusting that he knows what he's doing uh, and trusting that his will is good for you. Uh, and... Um, it is um, not an emotional thing where you drum up lots of fervor. Okay, sometimes people will sort of have this idea of faith as like this fervor of irrationality or something like that. But in the Bible, it's very concrete. Faith means having faith in, trusting. Um, obviously, to trust somebody has a prior assumption, which you believe they actually exist. You can't trust somebody that you don't think actually exists. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, the Bible says actually in our hearts, we all actually believe in God, in his existence. But our status naturally is we actually just don't like him. We don't want him around. <laughs> right? So you can say creation, the things around us are sufficient for us to have a guilty conscience, to believe that God is watching us, to believe that he's there. But that our actual nature would be, I know he's there, but I don't like it, and I wish he would go away, is our sort of default state. And um, to have faith in him is to turn and to say, not so much that he exists, although, of course, that is included, uh, but to really say, and I actually think he's good, and I think he knows what he's doing. And um, you could say, well, it stands to reason that if he made the whole universe, he would know how to run it, uh, and he would know what's good for it. But it's hard for our hearts which rebel against him uh, to accept that uh, and to really accept that he really knows what he's doing. Um, I'm going to define repentance, then we'll stop and maybe have a little discussion. Um, repentance at first sounds like something different. So repentance, you could say, is it faith in some sense you could say is something internal to us where we say, what is my, where's my heart at? You know, like, what do I really think about God? You know, do I want to be near him or not near him? You know, and so it's sort of an internal thing. Repentance at first sounds like it's external, right? It's basically stop doing evil and start doing what is right. Uh, and you see this all through scripture as well. You know, bring forth the fruits of repentance. Um, uh, faith without works is dead, uh, and so on. Um, it's not just feeling bad. And this is, I think, uh, again, sometimes a lot of confusion in society. We have a lot of other words. So penance is the idea of paying for your sin. Okay, and we just got through last week saying there's nothing we can do to pay for our sin. So we, we the Catholic Church would actually assign penance of saying, well, you did this sin, you have to pay for it by doing this and that. Um, the Bible doesn't really warrant that. The sacrifices of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ, and we don't offer sacrifices anymore. There's also the idea of remorse, which is feeling bad over your sin. Um, that's also not what repentance is. It might be that feeling bad over your sins makes you repent. That's the operation of your conscience. It should be the normal way things work. But feeling bad alone is not repentance. Lots of people feel bad about their sins, you know, I, you know and then they keep doing them. <laughs> and they keep, you know, I really don't like the fact that I'm robbing this person, but I'm still going to rob them. You know, that's not repentance. Okay, so repentance is actually stopping this and starting this. And uh, the Greek word is having a new mind of changing uh, your your views on things. So I've sometimes used this picture. Um, why are these so linked in Scripture? A lot of times they're in the same verse. You know, bring forth the fruits of repentance. Uh, you know, and put your faith, show your faith by your repentance, show your faith by your works, and so on. Um, and actually, so I'll, I'll give you two pictures here. Uh, one is, uh, if I'm walking, so suppose God is back behind me over there, uh, and I'm walking away from him. My natural state is to be fleeing him, okay? And I'm chasing after other things, all right? Uh, if I want to put my faith in God, I turn toward him, all right? So I'm facing him now and say, I want to go toward you, God. But notice what I also did simultaneously is I turned my back on those things, right? So the very act of turning to God is to repent from the things 
that were dazzling my eyes. And so uh, if I say I actually trust you and I want your things and I'm moving toward you, by definition, I'm moving away from the things that used to attract me. Uh, and so faith and repentance are really two sides of the same coin. Uh, and it really relies on that I actually believe that what God says to do is the actual right thing. And so if I believe that, then it makes sense to actually turn away from it because I don't think it's the right thing. Um, so repentance, you say true faith always leads to action. Um, so another way to put it is, and this is an equation I remember seeing many, uh, many years ago, um, sometimes um, people put up this. So the Catholic um, view might be summarized as like this. Um, faith plus works leads to salvation. Okay. So this puts the works fully on our side. right? We've got to do something. We've got to drum up the faith. We've got to do certain things. And if we do that, then we'll be saved. Okay. Then there's sort of a simplistic view, uh, which is called Arminianism, which theological camp I'm coming from, I just call them simplistic, is that we drum up uh, faith and then God saves us. So it's like the Catholic view, it's still up to us, but we just chop out the work side and we say, well, I just drum up the faith. Okay. Uh, what I would say is the biblical view is to invert this and say salvation okay, leads to faith and works. In other words, God takes the initiative. God brings about salvation. And in that process, he changes our heart and he also changes our actions. Okay, That he leads to change in us through his Holy Spirit. So our salvation is not conditional on these things. But these, you could say, are fruits of salvation that we are warranted to say, when I see those, I have a pretty good guess that person really is saved. Okay? Uh, because they're actually the fruits that flow from having roots uh, in, in God's salvation. Okay? So these are not causes of salvation. But like you'd say, okay, how do you know you've got an apple tree? Well, you see apples. Right? Like, the apples don't make the roots. The apples are coming. They're getting their nourishment from the roots. right? And so in this analogy, Jesus is the vine, and he's the roots of the system. right? Uh, so when there is a healthy tree, there's going to be apples. But the apples didn't make the tree. Rather, the tree made the apples. Okay. So I'm going to pause here. I, I presented a lot of stuff. <clears throat> so let's pause and, and uh, take questions and, and work this, uh, flush this out a little bit. That makes sense what I'm saying? There's this verse, I think I'm beginning to understand maybe what it means, but it kind of turns, at first it turns what you're saying on its head. Mm -hmm. I forget the verse, I forget where it is, but it says that we, we have to work out our salvation. Yeah, in Ephesians, right after that passage that I yeah. listed there. Yeah. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, because it is God who is at work in you. Right. Right. So it's um, basically, it's very, what I'm saying here is it's saying, you are doing works, okay, because God has already taken the initiative to change your heart. Right? Okay. So we could, uh, if somebody so has a Bible, we could look that up. The work that we need to do then in working out our salvation is to step aside and allow God to resolve the differences within us that might impede our salvation. Yeah, that's maybe one way of putting it. Um, you could say that that when we come to God, we're, we're inviting him to be in our heart, to give us that new heart, to live in us through his Holy Spirit, and to be united to Christ. Okay, So that's all language of being, having Christ in us, so to speak. All right, And basically, this is what I was, I think I gave this great quote um, last week, you know, um, John Calvin said, you can't ask for part of the Trinity and not the whole Trinity. Right? So you can't say, well, I like the atoning work of Christ, but I don't want the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's a package deal. Right? So when you say, God, I want you in my life, 
and you turn toward him, then you're basically saying, like, I'm turning myself over to you, and if you change my heart to love what is good and hate what is evil, that's good. All right. uh, and the Bible goes on to say that actually those whose hearts are changed, it always has some outworking in what we actually do. Right? It's never completely private. It's never completely internal. Um, but it doesn't mean that what we do is so wonderful and virtuous that that alone could save us. And that's another, I think, um, mistake that people sometimes make theologically, where they will say, well, okay, I was evil. <clears throat> then God's Holy Spirit came, and he made me now so virtuous that now I can earn salvation through my works. And that's not true either, right? So even after you were a Christian, you were still a sinner, and sin was still bad. Okay, so if you were cut off from Christ and stood in your own merits, you could not merit salvation, even after you're a Christian. On the other hand, you're not left unchanged either. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and does stuff to you. And like you were saying, you can say, I want to resist that, or you can say, I want to go with the flow of the Spirit and let the Spirit lead. Right? And there's lots of calls in Scripture to say, listen to your conscience, listen to the Spirit, uh, you know, let him change your heart um, that are part of that process. Right. But it's always on the assumption that the Spirit is already in you. So it's not saying, like, you need to do this to get the Spirit. It's saying you have the Spirit, so now don't resist the Spirit. Let the Spirit work in you. All right? And that, that one in Ephesians is actually a really great one where he says, work out your salvation because God is already at work in you. So he's took the initiative, he's doing stuff to you, so let it work out. Like, carry that forward and, and don't resist it. Yeah, other comments or questions? So I wonder what the language there about, like, work out your own salvation. Because I can also say work out your body. That means, like, exercise your body. Yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit confusing. Yeah, so... Um, the Greek there, I, I, I haven't parsed that Greek myself, but I've heard um, good sermons on it. Um, basically, um, we you know, even in English, we use that sense of work out. So like you could say in a math class, um, I've given you a proof of the uh, theorem. So now uh, work out the details in this particular example. Okay. So on the one hand, there is actual work involved. On the other hand, you could say it's an outworking of something which came before, right? And so you're sort of just working out the implications of it. And, and so the word that's in the Greek there is very much saying there is work involved. You know, it's not like he's saying just rest out your salvation, just lie back. You know, it's an active verb. It's saying, like, there is work to be done. But he's saying, like, it is work to be done in response to the work which has already been done to you. But there's still work. And so you could say the salvation has to be worked out because the salvation is like the theorem and the the life that's lived is like the examples that you work out after you prove the theorem, to use a, an analogy. So it's like to show the salvation. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so it's, it's not even necessarily like you have to show it. I mean, it will be shown because you can't keep light under a, a basket, you know. But... I don't think he's saying, like, you have to go out of your way to prove it to people. I think it's people are not even in view, so to speak, of what their opinions are. It's really more like saying, and he, in the verse just before that, he says, he created good works for us to do, which he prepared in advance. It's basically like saying, be who you are. Like, you are a person in Christ. So let that flow. Like, let it work out, uh, rather than resisting the, that that. Uh, and in fact, as I was saying, historically, in societies where this really took root in what's called Reformed uh, Europe, you know, uh, which was various specific countries, when people got this, actually they became much more law-abiding. Because, you know, and I've used this as kind of maybe a, <clears throat> a weird analogy, but the argument that you say, if you tell people that they uh, will be forgiven for all their sins, does it follow the all sin a whole lot? Okay. Well, okay. The analogy that's, you have to go with me on this. Okay. 
If I told people there is no punishment for eating blueberry pie, does it follow that people will wallow in eating blueberry pie? Okay, and you, the question that's probably appearing in your mind is why would everybody want to eat that much blueberry pie? Right, like the assumption of that question is that it's the motivation of everybody's heart to eat as much blueberry pie as possible, and the only thing holding them back is because there's punishment for eating blueberry pie. Right? But if you say, well, what if people just aren't motivated to actually eat blueberry pie, then the whole argument breaks down, right? So the assumption is that if everybody actually wants to do as much sin as possible, and the only thing holding them back is the law and fear of punishment, then that argument would work. But if you say, if you become a Christian and your heart has changed, you don't actually want to sin all the time. And so why would you go sin all the time? Because you don't even want to. Right, you see, you see the argument there? So, for you, sinning becomes like eating blueberry pie, where you say, well, in principle I could do it, and I wouldn't be punished, but why would I want to do that? Because that would just make God unhappy. You know, and I, and I don't want to make God unhappy, so my heart motivation has changed. Unfortunately, we're mixed bags, right? We're not purely only wanting good all the time either, right? As Christians, we, have both sin in our lives. So sometimes we do want the blueberry pie. <laughs> you know. Uh, so sometimes we are mixed. But in general, the Holy Spirit changes our heart motivation to not want to sin as much and to actually see that good is good and that we want to actually do it. Do you have a question or yeah, comment? I, I keep thinking in terms of uh, working out your salvation. Like we all carry... We all carry various pains in our lives. Yeah. You know, um, resentments, um, um, a willingness to, 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 to not give um, someone who's wronged us. And, mm -hmm. and even to the extent where that can become sinful, although in our own consciousness we don't. We don't recognize that. So maybe looking at your salvation is taking a step towards resolving those pains. Yeah, no, I think that's real good. Um, Cindy and I were talking about this. You know, like to what degree should we, should we be introspective? Right. Um, at one level, you can say I don't need to be super introspective in order to think about whether I'm accepted by God or not, right? Because I can simply say, whatever I've done, whatever's in there, God has forgiven it all. And um, I don't really need to know everything I've ever done. On the other hand, there is a value in introspection when you say, why is it that I find myself doing the same sin all the time? Like, what is the appeal? And you start to say, well, okay, if I really do believe in God, then why is this such an idol for me? You know, And you can actually start to work out weird thought patterns that you have and say, let me address those head on. And so sometimes changing sin patterns is very difficult because we have habits that we've built up for years. We just always do such and such. When somebody yells at me, I just react to them and I don't even think about it. And so you start to say, well, do I have to react when they do that to me? You know, like, you know, I can rethink my responses instead of just being automatic about them. Uh, but that can take years to work out. Right? Why is it that I'm doing this every time? I need to kind of work it out. And that's sort of introspective uh, in a way. Um, okay, so this now brings us to sort of the idea of identifying uh, people, both ourselves and others. Um, the Bible, as I said, uses all the way through the language of the new heart, or a, heart, a hard heart versus a living heart. Uh, Old Testament and New, and sometimes it's actually called a circumcised heart, uh, a heart uh, which has been sort of sealed and set apart for God. And in the language of the Old Testament, God says, I will circumcise your heart. You're circumcised in the flesh, but I will circumcise your heart. Um, I have a list here uh, on the handout of things that are not signs of spiritual union with Christ. Okay, so... Most of these have been promoted by somebody or other somewhere along the way, and some of them are ones that we come up with uh, on our own, even though they told us about them. 
so one of them is, and there's no particular order, an emotional conversion experience. Okay, so some people, historically and even in our present day, will say like the only way to know you're a Christian is if you have like a definite memory of this day of salvation when you have an emotional conversion experience. And one of the reasons why I think that that is a thing is because for some people it really is how they came to Christ. You know, I mean, there are some people who really were running from God and have a definite memory of their eyes being opened and turning the other way. And, and I would say I kind of am in that category, that I have probably three different memories. So I don't think... A lot of people have more than one memory. I have three very distinct memories in which I feel like the scales fell from my eyes, you know, where it was like I was blind and now I see. Um, there was a point at which I really came to believe in God. There was a point at which I really saw myself as sinful. And then there was a point at which I realized I need to actually repent of my sins. And those are three separate things for me. For some people, that might be all in one, <laughs> you know, but for me, it was actually three completely separate. But I mean, it was actually a very definite memory for me. Uh, for lots of people, it's not the case. For, for lots of people, um, they may have been raised in a Christian home, or they may have simply just come through a very long thought process where it was years of pondering, and they don't remember like one definite day where it was like, before this I didn't have faith and now I do. You know, But they would say, 20 years ago I had no faith for sure, and now I do. And I don't remember an actual day in between You know, when it was the day. Uh, and so that's, again, the difference between God's perspective and our perspective. That from God's perspective, you'd say, no, I adopted you on this day. But you may not have a memory of that. Um, on the other side, uh, their Bible's full of lots of statements saying, just because you're children of Abraham and you're raised as a Jew, you know, it doesn't mean you're a, child, you know, a spiritual child uh, because you can be a complete hypocrite. And for Christians, the book of Hebrews is basically saying the same thing. It's like just because, you know, he basically says if God was willing to reject Jews who were had hard hearts, of course, how much more so if you reject the Son, right? That just being in the church is not uh, evidence enough. And um, the appeal of this, actually, I think, is related to the first one. There are many people who have grown up in the church, have no memory of conversion. And so they say, well, where should I date my salvation to, so to speak? And it's very appealing to say, well, when you were baptized. That's a very clear marker, okay? And it's almost like salvation by baptism. Um, well, I think baptism is very important, but baptism does not save you. Uh, and that's there have been Christians who have taught that baptism actually saves you, and then you don't need to worry about repentance or having a hard heart or anything like that. The baptism is all you need. Um, and uh, again, you know, if, if Jesus was able to say to circumcise Jews, the fact that you're circumcised does not make you right with God, it's certainly going to be the same with baptism. Baptism alone is not something that saves people, even though it's important and good. Um, there's a, I mentioned the Arminian school of thought. Uh, I actually went to a church for several years after I became a Christian that really did say something as simple as the following, that all that matters is that you prayed a sinner's prayer to accept the gift of Christ's salvation. And if you said that once, like you're in, and there's nothing more to worry about. Uh, and it's almost like the salvation by baptism people, right? It's like... Um, so first of all, they're saying that it's really up to you, that your choice to pray the sinner's prayer is what it's all about, and that God is sort of waiting for you to pray this prayer, and if you do, then you're, you're in. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it becomes just like the, the ethnic thing, and then it's like, okay, well, you said the sinner's prayer, so now it doesn't matter what you do. You know, because, you know, all that matters is you have this identification with this prayer. And, of course, it also has led to, uh, on the Internet, but even before the Internet, people saying it sounds totally unjust, right, to say, well, um, these people live just the same way as those people, but these people said this little sinner's prayer, uh, and so God is going to reward them in heaven and these people not. You know, uh, and, um, you know, I think that accusation is just, you know, that uh, if that's all that there is to the story, uh, that would be unjust. Um, 
Here's one that I think that we all fall into. Uh, there are some people who actually teach this officially, so the Catholic Church would make a distinction between venial and mortal sins, right? And so they would say, if you uh, commit a mortal sin, you are technically an unbeliever until you go and do penance for that sin and are restored to the church uh, through the um, confession and the, and the various uh, processes that they have. On the other hand, if you do venial sins, not a big deal. Um, and I feel like we all fall into that, actually, kind of say, well, I never do anything really, really bad. You know, so yes, I do sins, but I never do any really bad sins. Um, the problem with that is that you, well, two problems with that. One is you can just become a total hypocrite and justify everything you do by saying it's not really very bad, right? But the opposite is also possible, where you just start to feel guilty because the more you keep doing that and saying, well, nothing I did was really very bad, your heart knows better and knows that sin is actually evil. And so you start to build up this huge guilty conscience where you're saying, like, I'm trying to justify that nothing I did was really all that bad, but my heart knows better and the guilt just keeps rising. Right? And scripturally, uh, sin is sin. Uh, you know, so some sin is more evil than others, but all sin is evil. And so you can't make a threshold to say, well, there's a certain level of sin that no Christian would go beyond. Uh, unfortunately, you look at like David, King David literally committed adultery and murder and yet was forgiven. Right? So there's a formula, again, these like pithy formulas from the Reformation. Um, and I'll see if I can say this right. Um, there is no sin so small uh, that if it is not forgiven by God, it will not lead to damnation. But there's also no sin that is so great that if you do come to God and repent of it, that you cannot be saved. Does that make sense? So um, we, if, we, uh, if we persist in any evil, that evil is evil, no matter how small you may think of it yourself. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, there's no cutoff to say, well, this sin was too much, and if it did that, well, you just definitely can't be saved. Right? There, there is no brink that you cannot go beyond, uh, other than literally to reject the Holy Spirit altogether and to not be a Christian. Um, uh, because then you're basically saying the only avenue of salvation is cut off uh, at that point. Uh, but I would say we tend to fall into that. And maybe we can do this through the back door in what I said before about, you know, we, I talked about how sanctification leads to us wanting to do what is right and hating what is evil. And so I think after you've been a Christian for a while, you could say, how could I have done that? Because to do that would be to actually want evil. And how could I love God and want evil? Uh, but that's precisely where we all find ourselves. And this is Romans chapter 7, you know, is that we are in some sense, at a, in a warfare between our old self and our new self, that uh, as a Christian, as a, you could say as a non-Christian, um, I was unhappy because of consequences, but I was actually united in my love of sin. <laughs> there was no warfare in me in terms of my conscience. The warfare was in that all these things were happening to me that I didn't like, right? Uh, I, I, again, because I became a Christian somewhat later, uh, as a teenager, I remember being a non-Christian, and I had no warfare in me in terms of whether I really loved God or not. It was just like, I did what I wanted to do, and that was the end of the story. The warfare in me was all how unfair the world was and not giving me what I wanted. Uh, <laughs> you know. But after you're a Christian, now you have a split. You have the Holy Spirit working in you, and you also have your old ways, which don't give up so easy. And so the scripture talks about the, the warfare, the spiritual warfare of fighting sin on a daily basis and repenting daily. Yeah? Oh, it, it, see, we, you know, it, it goes so deep because we rationalize our sin. Yes. We justify it for ourselves, even to the extent of believing that we're entitled to something. Right. I, yeah, it's funny because as much as people talk about free choice, whenever... You talk about sin with people, the typically the next words out of their mouth will be, I had to because, right? Uh, and it's basically saying, like, I was forced into it and uh, I had no choice, right? Even the language of addictions, 
doesn't resolve the, the damage done, but makes an excuse for a continual return. Mm -hmm. uh, well, maybe it's just a disease. You know, when you make it a disease, all of a sudden it's not your responsibility. Yeah. It is justified in continuing. Right, we have all kinds of little mental tricks, and also, you know, the Bible uses the word flesh a lot of times to talk about yeah. our sin nature, and it's because our body is involved. Like, I think people react against that, the Bible using that word flesh because they feel like it sounds like Paul is adopting a sort of a Greek view, Platonic view of, like, the body is evil. But that's not what he's saying, but he's actually um, saying something which is very true, which is our body and our minds are not so separate. And when your body wants something, it produces lots of thinking in your mind as to why that is totally justified, <laughs> right? And so we like to think that our minds run everything, but our bodies actually do a lot of giving us ideas and saying, wouldn't it be great to do this? You know? uh, and so we are at war with our flesh, not because our flesh is evil, but not intrinsically so, uh, but because... Um, it's constantly suggesting lines of thought that we have to stamp down. Uh, and we have to really say, you know, again, why do I want this? Okay, I need to, to gain the upper hand. Um, and so I sometimes use the analogy of a wild horse. Like our bodies are like a wild horse. That you could say it needs to be tamed to be ridden, uh, but it's not evil as such, right? Like it just needs to be brought into line with what is good. But there's still going to be a battle with that horse to bring it in line uh, until it is a tame horse. But to some degree, like a raging wild horse is a beautiful thing. Uh, but it, it, it cannot remain. We're not meant to be animals. You know, like we are meant to be in control, and we need to tame that wild horse uh, of our emotions and all these other things that, that are flowing around. Um, <clears throat> Let me see, I probably have about five more minutes, maybe. Um, I don't even know how long I've been going here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, about ten, a little, little less than ten minutes. Um, I'm just going to list these up. I think I don't need to convince you that just knowing all the proper doctrines is not proof that you're a Christian. There's some people who have like a, a theological doctrinal test to say that you're a Christian if you believe this, and if you don't, you're not a Christian. Um, we, uh, you know, I would say scripturally uh, and in the Reformed tradition, uh, we'd say a person could be a believer with a changed heart in a very, very bad church with very bad theology um, because it is the work of God <clears throat> to change us, not our theology checklist. That doesn't mean that doctrine is not important. We should try to actually know God and understand him uh, through his word. Uh, but we all make mistakes theologically and... Um, and we, can, uh, and we can still be saved. Uh, and also, this sort of gets at what's called the pietist tradition. There are some people who feel like, the way I know I'm a Christian is because I have deep emotional times of penance where I'm just raking myself over the coals, uh, and um, uh, I'm just you know, wallowing in how horrible I am. And it's almost like saying, if I have a deep enough emotional experience, that will prove that I'm a Christian. Only it's not necessarily like a one-time past conversion experience. It's more like, um, you know, I can just wallow in my sin and really hate myself, and that will prove that I'm a Christian. Uh, now, it may be that the Lord brings you to a deep sense of guilt, but we're not meant to stay there. We're meant to move through that toward joy and understanding that, that we are forgiven in Christ. Okay, so then what are good signs? Well, the Bible, again, talks always about the new heart. One of them is clearly love. Uh, and love is not an emotion scripturally. Uh, it is an actual orientation to want good for other people and to actually take actions to have that come about. Again, like just sitting around and saying, well, I really wish the poor would be richer. That's not really love. It might start you down a path of love, but it is not itself uh, the whole story. Um, Again, repentance is, is one of change. Uh, change over time that we see, uh, and again, if you're a new Christian, this is going to be hard to see, but if you've been a Christian for a while, the norm should be that you say, there's things that I used to do that I just don't do anymore because the Holy Spirit has really convicted me or changed me. And um, this is why sometimes it's risky and why we have a hard time understanding whether somebody else is a Christian. Um, 
C.S. Lewis you know, talked about this. We see like a snapshot usually of somebody, of where they're at right now. It might be this person was really, really bound up in evil, and they became a Christian, and they've started changing, but they're still like, have a lot of baggage, right? And, and so we are seeing them, you know, in a position where we don't realize how much they've changed for the good. You know, like, um, somebody might have a horrible background and have changed a ton, but they still have a lot of issues, you know, that they haven't worked out. And we might judge them as a non-Christian because we're sort of judging on an absolute scale and saying, well, look at what they're doing. But, you know, Christ would say, look, you don't know where they came from, you know. Conversely, you could say, here's this person who actually seems really nice and seems like a really good Christian. But actually, from God's perspective, they might be a Pharisee who just knows how to say all the right things and, and has a, a good digestion and, uh, you know, feels, you know, has been trained to speak politely. And actually, they're totally hard-hearted against God and they resist change and they, uh, they have a hard heart toward him. So um, we can be mistaken sometimes without seeing the whole picture of how much somebody has changed. Um, so again, just listing these out here, uh, a soft heart <clears throat> that when we are challenged uh, to greater obedience that we, we don't hate that idea uh, and we, we're soft toward that. And oftentimes that comes about when somebody in the church challenges us. Uh, if someone's instant reaction is, how dare you tell me what to do? That is not a good sign that the Holy Spirit is really working on their heart because that's saying this is a person who really is defining right and wrong entirely by their own perspective and, and can't hear correction. Um, and I would say, in general, a spirit of thankfulness, uh, not a spirit of grumbling and a, and a spirit of fear of judgment. Um, we are meant to live, you know, Paul says, you know, rejoice always. Um, and again, this doesn't, just like we can say, it's not like a Christian is sinless. It's not like a Christian, a Christian life is just one continuous joy, right? There's a lot of pain and sorrow and suffering and fear and so on in the Christian life. But our orientation toward God should generally be, uh, I am thankful for what you've done for me, and I rest in what you've done for me, and I'm not constantly living in an attitude of expecting you to slam me. Uh, and sometimes uh, that's called the freedom in Christ. Um, and I sometimes have used this for people like, how do you know when you might have been sucked into a cult? Because there are cults, right? And, and, I, and some of them come across as very Christian. And, and one of the ways is that you can start to say, whoa, what's going on here, is if there's a complete spirit of fear about the thing. And like everybody's constantly worried about somebody judging them and stepping out of line and then it's like, say, something has gone terribly wrong here because the spirit of Christ is a spirit of freedom and a spirit of love, not a spirit of constant judgmentalism uh, all the time. And you just see that all through, through Scripture. Um, okay, so the second page here, I, um, maybe we'll punt most of this uh, toward, uh, toward next week. Um, this is sort of a summary, in a sense, of stuff I've already said. Um, I'll just summarize it, and then we can Q&A as long as we want. Does the Bible encourage people to wallow in sin? And as I said, no. The reason is because to be united by Christ, by faith, is also to have His Holy Spirit actually changing our hearts. And so um, that gets back to this formula here, that salvation always leads to faith and works. And so James can say, faith without works is dead, not because the works create the salvation, but because the Holy Spirit actually is at work and will always lead you to actually changing for the better, even though it may take uh, quite some time. Uh, who should I accept as a fellow Christian? Um, in general, Jesus says, you can know them. And you know them by their fruits, and the Bible lists what the fruits of the Spirit are. Um, love, peace, joy, patience, and so on. Uh, the work of the Spirit. On the other hand, the fact is that we can never know absolutely somebody else's heart. Uh, and so we can be wrong. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we should never say, I'm pretty sure. Uh, 
But also, maybe what we were judging by, so like just the fact that somebody was on a stage playing worship music uh, and had a big Twitter following does not mean that they were a Christian. Right? The Bible never says, if they have lots of followers, they must be a Christian. Right? It says, do they have a soft heart toward God, and are they repenting of their sins and placing their faith in him? And we don't know that about a lot of famous people. Right? We don't really know where their heart uh, was at. Right. And saying, I definitely know you're not a Christian is often hard to do too, right? Well, and it's often wrong to do. Yeah. Um, you know, if you don't, like what you said, said before, we don't know what they've come from and what stage they are in looking out their salvation. Right, right. Yeah, so I mean, generally you could say there's sort of three categories of people. There are people who clearly say, I'm not a Christian, and don't want to be thought of as a Christian, and we can take them at their word. Uh, on the other hand, there's people who clearly are Christians and are evidencing not just with their confession, but also with their lives that they are Christians. And there's a third category of people who say, well, I'm getting mixed messages. Like, sometimes I think this, and sometimes I think that. And it's actually not important that we decide about all those middle ground people. Like, I can say, well, clearly these people are Christian, as far as I know. And again, I'm never perfect about that. But on the other hand, there's a middle category of people who give me mixed messages. And it's not crucial that I make up my mind about all those people. Right? I, I can just refrain from judgment and say, I just don't know about this person because I don't have enough information. You know? Um, there is a place, and I'm going to talk about this probably in, in a couple of weeks, about the church sometimes has to make a judgment call to say you cannot be a member of our church. Like if somebody's saying, you know, going around the church saying, well, I think the Holocaust was a great idea and we should kill Jews, and they're like propagating this in your church, sometimes you have to say like, uh-uh, we can't allow that. <laughs> you know, like someone who, you know, there is a line. And even in that, the Bible says... We're not necessarily saying we know for sure you're not a Christian. You're just not giving us any evidence that you are a Christian, and we can't have you propagating these things in, inside the church. And so there is such a thing as a false teacher or a false believer. In rare occasions, the church actually has to make that judgment call, but uh, not always. Sometimes you can just say, we don't know. Yeah, go ahead. Well, what about, what about I got I to say, um, what about a church that, in, well, in the time it's happened, the church that endorses a movement that, mm -hmm. that at its core has, has values that stand harshly against um, the gospel and, and, and even, even the, the propagation of Christianity. Yeah, so I'm going to come back in a couple of weeks and talk about sort of the definition of the church. So I'll just in general say right now, um, so the question was about, you know, uh, how do we know a true church? You know, we talked about knowing true believers. And, and I would say it's actually similar with churches, that we could say um, that certainly just the fact that they say they're a church is not sufficient because there are false churches. On the other hand, we can have a standard that says, well, they have to be sinless and the perfect church or else they're not. So you, you expect to see churches that have sins just as every believer sins. And so then you have to say, well, um, if I'm not having a standard of perfection, then what, where do I draw the line? Uh, and uh, oftentimes, similar to what we said about people, it's a judgment call. And in some cases, I can say, well, I'm this, this church clearly seems to me Christian. This one's a little more iffy, and I'm not sure, and this one clearly is not. Uh, and uh, having a middle ground of churches where I say I just don't have enough information, is sometimes the wisest course to say, I simply don't know enough about that church to say whether they're really a true church or not. Um, but we can go, we can, we can get into dangerous ground if we say, if they support any one thing that is sinful, they cannot be a true church. Like, you think about it, how dangerous that could be, right? You know, like, uh, I remember <clears throat> years ago going to a concert and someone was handing out flyers saying, don't go to this concert because these people support Billy Graham. I'm like, what's wrong with that, you know? And so I asked the person, like, what's wrong with supporting Billy Graham? And they said, well, Billy Graham 
supports this other guy, and that other guy um, did not sufficiently condemn communism. Uh, and so Billy Graham is indirectly supporting communism, and this church, by supporting Billy Graham, is indirectly, indirectly supporting communism. And I'm like, you know, it's like this chain of logic is too long for me, you know. It's like, um, if you think about it, like this standard of perfection by guilt by association, like every one of us could be could be kicked out that way. So I'm going to come back to that in a couple of weeks. Um, okay, so I'll just end with this then. Uh, how can I be sure that I am saved? Uh, and basically the point I want to make here is, again, there's a difference between my sense of assurance and the actual assurance, right? So um, it can be the case that you don't think you're saved, but you actually are. Or it can be the case that you are in doubt about it, uh, but in fact it is nevertheless true, okay? Um, so our sense of assurance can indeed go up and down, uh, even while from God's perspective we are once and for all adopted. Uh, and... Uh, uh, scripture and the Reformed Confessions talk about several things that can lead to lack of assurance. So, like, remaining in unrepentance for a long time. Basically, if you say, like, if I'm living continuously like a non-Christian, it's going to make my heart feel like I'm not a Christian, right? Uh, and, and that is something that can weaken our sense of assurance. Uh, attacks from outside. If the entire world says that Christianity is stupid, it can make me feel like, am I just an idiot? You know, uh, and our assurance can go down. Um, mental disorder. People can fall into depression or anxiety or, you know, you name it. And that can affect, like I said, our body affects our thinking. Like you can have um, thought patterns that are popping in your mind uh, uh, from your flesh that disturb your mind. Uh, and... Um, History is full of famous people like this. Like um, some of the, like even Martin Luther, probably had some kind of mental illness uh, because he would fly into fits of depression and, and so on. Uh, and yet, um, that didn't mean they weren't believers. It just, but, but but the confessions are really good in saying, nevertheless, even though our sense of assurance can go up and down, like the normal state for Christians should be that you are confident and resting that you are saved. Like. It's not meant to be the normal state of Christians to swing every day to wonder. And it's because it doesn't ultimately rest on us, but it rests on Christ. And so our rest isn't saying, I think God will finish what he started. And I see that he has begun a good work in me, and I'm confident he will finish it. And my rest is not on myself, but on him who is doing it to me. And so this normal state of the Christian should be to be able to rest in his work uh, that he is working in us. Go ahead. What's that? Paul's thorn. Yeah, Paul's thorn in the flesh. We don't even know really what that was. But um, in Romans 7, he talks about wrestling with sin, uh, even as an apostle. And he talks in the present tense. He doesn't say, like, I used to wrestle with sin and now I don't. He's saying, I wrestle with sin in the present tense. And he was very careful in his choice of verb tenses. So did Luther. Yes, yeah. And uh, I was like, I mean... Uh, there's a, a wonderful story, uh, biography of Martin Henry Martin, who's one of the first missionaries to Native Americans in the 1700s, and it's his, it's his diary. And in the diary, you'll you, you'll read things like, "Well, I uh, stayed in bed till like two in the afternoon because I was so." Of course, they didn't use the word depression then, but he was like, "I was so cast down in my spirit." Uh, you know, that I, you know, I couldn't get out of bed. And then, you know, I finally, in the afternoon, got out of bed. And I went and I preached to the Indians, and uh, 150 of them became Christians. And then I was cast down in the spirit again, and I fell back into bed at midnight, you know. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, you know, he was being used by the Lord. Even while he was having these huge mental struggles, uh, he was dying of tuberculosis and he had mental depression. Uh, and yet, he was still doing all this stuff and, and dragging himself out of bed and preaching full of the spirit. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, the fact is that sometimes people can be greatly used with the Lord, even though there's a lot of things turning around uh, inside them. Um, so, again, I just want to uh, maybe just finish with it. Faith is not a work that we do to impress God, and it's not like we have to say, I have this sort of 
perfection of faith that it somehow impresses God. It's really just an assessment. I call it a sober assessment of the way the world really works, that there really is a God. He's really, an act, he's really active in it. He's really doing stuff, and, and he knows what he's doing. Uh, and it's, it's a fundamental orientation about how we think about the world. So I'm going to quit with that and uh, stop recording here.